And now for a taste of things to come. Hi, welcome to the very first episode of To the 90s and Beyond. Thank you so much for listening. If you're expecting to hear another episode of the Quipster Film Review Podcast, Unfortunately, that is a podcast I'm unable to really do justice to, given that it's covering mostly new movies, and for a variety of reasons I spelled out in the previous two episodes, I'm not able to keep up with it, but this is the Replacement Podcast. It will feature, on occasion, new movies that are out in theaters, on VOD, or streaming services, but primarily, to the 90s and beyond, will feature, you guessed it, films of the 1990s, as well as films that came out in subsequent decades as well, but with an eye toward films I'm doing on this podcast as well as my other podcast called Around the World in 80s Movies. If you want to hear that show, you can find the link to that at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. To the 90s and beyond, I'm going to be covering all kinds of films from the 1990s, not just ones that continued on beyond the decade, but in the case of the first series that I'm going to be doing. It does. The first film I'm going to be talking about on this show actually has a new movie that is out in theaters as well as on the HBO Max platform, Mortal Kombat. The debut film is going to be the first episode, 1995's Mortal Kombat. It is a PG-13 rated film. It does have some scary images and violence. The runtime is one hour and 41 minutes. Robin Shaw, Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa, Lyndon Ashby, Bridget Wilson, Christopher Lambert, Talisa Soto, and Trevor Goddard are in the film. Paul W.S. Anderson, just called Paul Anderson at the time, is the director. The screenplay credited to Kevin Droney. Now, if you don't know what Mortal Kombat really is about, I guess maybe you didn't grow up in the 90s. I don't know. But Mortal Kombat was, and well, still is, a video game. Actually, a whole franchise of video games have sprouted out since it debuted in 1992. The origin of that game actually started in 1991, and that's when the uh, a game programmer named Ed Boon, as well as an artist, John Tobias, they were looking to try to create a fighting game that would feature like a digitized version of Jean-Claude Van Damme. And specifically, they were going to do this game related to his 1988 film called Bloodsport. And so they started crafting these digital images using their friends, and they would put them into the computer. They were performing martial arts moves, and they would alter these scans digitally to represent a variety of of interdimensional warriors, each of them with unique attributes and fighting styles and backstories. And eventually, though, the Bloodsport licensing did fall through, but they still tried to continue making this into a game. They drew influence from other martial arts films that they also enjoyed. Johnny Cage, one of the characters in this game, was based on Van Damme, while other characters and basically the overall design aesthetic of the game came from such things as Big Trouble in Little China or Suey Hark films like uh, like The Swordsman or Zoo Warriors. Boone and Tobias did feel that fighting games like Street Fighter II, very popular games at the time, they somehow lacked something really exciting, especially in the victories. So they, for their game, concocted these ultra-violent fatalities. These fatalities could end the match, and the successful fighter could deliver like a really nasty final blow to their opponents, like ripping out 
their skulls or spines or hearts or punching their heads off or disintegrating their flesh. Usually a kind of gory, but somehow a, a really satisfying, I guess, last hit to show that your character has won the match. Boone and Tobias sold this game concept to Midway Manufacturing Company, and they introduced it into arcades, as I mentioned, in 1992. The game very quickly skyrocketed to international success. It really, altogether, kind of like its franchise, earned over a billion dollars in revenue, more than really any Hollywood blockbuster of its era. And Mortal Kombat's popularity started to bring attention to not only its series of games, but also the gaming industry as a whole because of the graphic violence that is portrayed within the game. In fact, it received congressional attention, and that caused the gaming industry to preemptively devise this rating system that would show the level of mature content that is found in home console games, the ESRB, of course, that we all know today. But I'm not here to talk about Mortal Kombat the game or its series, because that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. I'm here to talk about the first film adaptation. Originally, it was entitled Mortal Kombat The Movie, and it was developed by a producer named Larry Kasanoff. And this would be for his newly formed production company called, well, it was originally called Amalgamated Widgets, but then he changed the name of the company to Threshold Productions. And the emphasis of that company would be to specialize in multimedia platforms for intellectual properties. Kasanoff had just recently resigned. He was the president and the co-founder, along with James Cameron, of Lightstorm Entertainment. They were responsible for specifically Terminator 2 and True Lies, so very successful ventures there. And Kasanoff, among other things, handled the merchandising opportunities for those properties. Now, one Lightstorm breakthrough was the Terminator 2 Judgment Day arcade game a rail shooter that was released by Midway Games in October of 1991, and it became a record-breaking success. It was the biggest hit for its industry. Now, in June of 1993, Kasanoff happened to be talking to some friends that he had made at Midway, and they told him they were about to release a game that was sure to pass the T2 revenue record. This really got Kasanoff's attention, so he decided he needed to pay a little visit to see this game. He flew out to Midway's Chicago office, and he played this test model of their next big game called Mortal Kombat 2. And as Kasanoff played this, he saw, well, this is really more than just a mere game. Mortal Kombat 2 was violent, and it was a bloody fighter, but it had a very familiar premise of Enter the Dragon, but a whole mythology behind it, kind of like the feel of Star Wars. And Kasanov thought, you know, this really had the potential, perhaps, to be an across-the-board pop culture phenomenon if it was marketed right. You know, this premise could translate easily into movies, into TV shows, into comic books, into you name it, this really could take off. Midway, though, was pretty skeptical because, you know, they saw other video games that tried to do this, tarnished, like Super Mario Brothers, it had a substandard movie come out and people started to sour, at least at that time on the property, but despite the many naysayers, not only within Midway, but just in general, who thought Kasanoff was probably gonna throw away his career for this game that had such negative media reputation at the time, after three months of pursuing it, Kasanoff did obtain the intellectual property rights to Mortal Kombat, at least for a short duration. So coordinating with Danny Simons, the licensing group, Kasanoff started to orchestrate this synergistic cross-media blitz. He wanted to do movies, animation, comic books, television shows, stage shows, 
clothing lines, all kinds of books and merchandise, and, of course, a toy line. He saw the internet as a primary source for advertising all of these properties. The internet was inexpensive at the time, and it also targeted specifically the game's primary demographic of males age 13 through 25. At that time, anyway. Obviously, it's much more expensive nowadays. Now, knowing that the game had received massive blowback from parents' groups regarding its levels of graphic violence, Kasanov knew that a major cleanup of the property's reputation was going to be needed if he really wanted to go mainstream. So to do this, Kasanov emphasized the first word in the game, Mortal Kombat. The mortals would be humans fighting to save Earth from those who are not mortals, these inhuman fighters from another dimension. Now, given the evil alien nature of the enemies, he proposed, the violence should be entirely justified, and that should make it acceptable family fare for those movies and comics and cartoons and whatnot. And besides, while graphic violence was pretty novel at that time in video games, it was really done to death in movies. He thought, you know, it was better, actually, to give audiences great visuals, great action choreography instead of dwelling on just making it gory they would probably be bored with that angle after some time now controversy aside for the game Kasanov immediately received interest from four film studios who wanted to make the Mortal Kombat movie adaptation among those Kasanov eventually chose New Line Cinema primarily because they were the only ones that he was approached by who actually knew what the game was so Kasanov also had a prior business relationship with New Line's Vice President of Acquisitions, Ruth Vital, who happened to be President of Vestron Pictures, while Kasanov worked as their head of production. So New Line secured the rights. They promised a budget of 16 to $18 million, the most, really, for any movie that they had made to that date. They just needed a story concept to wrap this game around. And that's where we turn to Kevin Droney. Joni was an established television writer. He was working primarily as the supervising producer for the television show of Highlander. Joni happened to have recently sold an unrelated spec script called Down Came a Blackbird to this movie producer who started shopping it around to various studios. Now, Joni's agent knew that Joni had a passion for karate, and so he sent a copy of that script to the Mortal Kombat creative team as a sample of his work. And the team took a look at it. They liked Droney's writing style and they called him in to pitch what he would do if he were given a Mortal Kombat adaptation to perform. Droney didn't really know very much about the game, but he knew his 11-year-old son was a fan, so he asked his son what he thought the story of Mortal Kombat was. And Droney's son claimed it was just a bunch of guys kicking each other's asses, really. So Droney knew he'd have to get pretty creative if he was going to build the story around that. So as Droney started receiving faxes, background information that he had requested about the making of the game and its philosophy, he also took time to visit an arcade to see the gameplay of a Mortal Kombat game, and he noticed there seemed to be its own mythology behind it. Using his knowledge of myths, Droney came up with this plausible through line for character arcs using the reluctant hero archetype. And of the 15 writers the Mortal Kombat team saw who potentially could write the screenplay, Droney happened to be the only one who developed a viable story idea for the game. They asked him to pitch it to New Line the following week, and they hired his services. And after coming up with a 45-page story treatment, New Line officially greenlit Mortal Kombat the movie. 
So with the writer in place, they sought a director, and they contemplated several prominent action directors. But in the mix, they decided they wanted Mortal Kombat to be not just another actioner. They wanted something hipper, more energetic in its approach. And so enter British director Paul Anderson. Anderson was sought on the strength of his ultra-violent but visually impressive low-budget film debut called Shopping, a film which found itself at New Line because they were seeking a distributor at that time. New Line was not really interested in shopping per se, but Anderson's visual flair really did impress the producers enough to call him in to discuss whether he might be interested in doing Mortal Kombat. Now, Anderson, although we know him today as a very visual special effects filmmaker, he didn't have any of that experience at the time. So he, before his meeting with New Line, crammed through as many books as he could find to try to bluff his way into the job if necessary. And in March of 1994, it paid off. He was offered the job. The budget did increase for the film to $21 million. Anderson happened to be an avid gamer. He was very enthusiastic about directing this adaptation of one of his favorite games. He knew that Mortal Kombat in, in essence, was a pretty dumb story idea. So he knew he had to emphasize characterizations if he was going to make it overall a fun experience through that dumb idea. The best action films, he thought, had characters that audiences identified with specifically. So he wanted his heroes to be very distinct, very likable. He wanted actors that would fit specific molds within that, and each hero would have to overcome personal fears as well as weaknesses to emerge victoriously so we could identify with their journey. Although movies based on video games had a really poor reputation, really still do, Anderson was not worried at all. Those other attempts, he thought, were based on games that had no established film genre to really build upon. But Mortal Kombat was based on martial arts action films. It naturally lent itself to becoming an action movie. Besides, Bonfire of the Vanities was a best-selling book, its failure as a movie didn't mean that book adaptations sucked because Jurassic Park the year before was a smash success. Batman succeeded as a comic book adaptation, but Captain America, the 1990 version, never saw release into theaters. It's really all relative to the vision of the creators of the films and has nothing to do with the medium of their origin. Meanwhile, Kevin Droney continued working. He expanded his story treatment into a screenplay, and he wanted to incorporate as many game elements as he could. He was mindful, though, that a PG-13 rating was required by the licensing agreement. So he had to remove all gruesome fatalities. He had to assure that only non-humans could be killed on screen. Although the plot does borrow heavily from the 1973 Bruce Lee flick Enter the Dragon, Droney also saw, like Kasnoff, Star Wars, within the story he had it in mind for the delivery of his film. He would specifically aim it at younger viewers like his son, and he would bounce ideas off of his son in the writing. In Droney's plot, the characters of Earth have to battle for survival against evil forces that have enhanced powers within this alternate dimension called Outworld. Those forces can take dominion of Earth altogether if they can win 10 straight interdimensional tournaments that occur every generation. So we're dropped into the story with Outworld, having won nine straight championships. Meanwhile, three mortals from Earth, a martial arts expert with a troubled past named Liu Kang, a cocky Hollywood action star named Johnny Cage, and this vengeful special forces soldier named Sonya Blade, they become fighters who are mentored by this god named Raiden as they are forced into this battle tournament to the death to save Earth from being taken over by these evil forces. 
Eventually, they're taken to this remote island to battle the evil sorcerer Shang Tsung and his minions. The palm projectile flinging scorpion, Sub-Zero, who can freeze pretty much anything he touches or fling cold blasts at people, Kato, this very dangerous fighting crime boss, and this Ray Harryhausen-esque giant with four arms named Goro. Anderson wanted to make an epic quest movie like the ones he loved as a kid, but do it in the style that teens would enjoy today. Jason and the Argonauts, with the cinematic look of The Crow or maybe a, a flick by John Woo. He wanted Mortal Kombat to look like no other film. Interiors would have the dark texture of European art house cinema. He wanted colorful combinations never seen before, really, in movies. Remote parts of Thailand, they could provide the breathtaking landscapes, and it would be nicely photographed by the cinematographer John R. Leonetti. Shooting in Thailand, though, was pretty difficult. There was oppressive heat at many times. The locales were accessible really only by boat, and the locals didn't always know the most expedient way to set up a Hollywood production. The visual effects for Mortal Kombat were supervised by Terminator 2's Allison Savage, and there were also a lot of mechanical effects, including the flaky million-dollar animatronic hybrid puppet named Goro, created by Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis of Amalgamated Dynamics. Goro required a man to wear like this big top half, the top two arms and upper torso and head that required up to 16 technicians to operate, including rods that were digitally removed later. Two voice actors did portray Goro, Kevin Michael Richardson for the dialogue, as well as Frank Welker for the grunts and growls. All of the Goro scenes had to be done on set because if Goro malfunctioned so frequently, despite the best skilled technicians available around Hollywood, they really didn't have any desire to take it to Thailand, to those remote locations. Casting for the film began before Droney's script was completed, although the budget was pretty tight. They did want an international star to portray Lord Raiden, the God of Thunder. They cycled through several actors who had gravitas, but with a humorous attitude. Sean Connery and Danny Glover are, are ones they seriously considered. Ultimately, though, they landed Connery's Highlander co-star, Christopher Lambert. Lambert originally had no interest in doing a video game movie, but he screened Anderson's shopping, and he loved it. He thought this guy could really bring it to life. Although the script wasn't really there, he liked that they were going with a story that had a unique mythology, and that even more so that he would be playing a super-powered being, and he didn't have to train physically. Because Lambert commanded a million-dollar price tag, the studio did want to limit his shooting schedule. But when Lambert found out that they were going to only film him in close-ups in Los Angeles and then use a body double for wide shots in Thailand, he paid out of his own pocket to travel to Thailand while he filmed his scenes, and then he even paid for the Mortal Kombat rap party at the end. For other roles, Anderson wanted actors who resembled the game's characters, of course, but one specifically that could handle the fight choreography and physical demands of the shoot. He didn't want to use stunt doubles as much as he could. The main actors underwent two months of martial arts training with fight choreographer Pat Johnson prior to the production. Robin Shaw, he happened to be a skilled martial artist and a stuntman already, but at that time he was disenchanted with the direction that Hong Kong action flicks were headed, and he was contemplating leaving the business altogether by expanding his side job selling imported goods. While Shaw was on a business trip to the United States, his agent informed him, hey, New Line, they were actually looking for actors for this Mortal Kombat adaptation and that he should go and pursue it. 
Xiao had never really heard of the game, but he, he sought it out in an arcade, and he became hooked. After various auditions, the studio thought this handsome and charismatic actor could be the next Bruce Lee, so they hired him over several other prominent Asian actors. Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa, he took the main villain role of the shape-shifting, soul-stealing sorcerer Shang Tsung because his son was really obsessed with the game. He didn't want to come home and realize his son was no longer speaking with him if he didn't take the role. And he also had a personal interest in martial arts films, too. He decided he was going to play Shang very over the top because the dialogue he was given was very bombastic. It was really the only way he thought that you could make it work. His portrayal as the evil one was so intense that children in Thailand who were watching them film this would run away from him. New York-born Puerto Rican actress Talisa Soto, she plays the 10,000-year-old and yet still youthful Princess Kitana. Cameron Diaz was offered the Sonya Blade part based on the star potential and athleticism that she showed in dailies for another New Line cinema feature called The Mask. However, her involvement did end. She broke her wrist during training when she hit her karate instructor too hard on the head, and that left her unavailable to do the rest. To avoid having to do last-minute wardrobe adjustments, they recast the role with somebody Diaz's height and build, 5-foot-9-inch Kathleen McClellan, who, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you may recognize as the naked girlfriend, the one who wants to be naked all the time in Jerry's apartment. But McClellan, too, was quickly injured. With only a few days left to go before shooting beginning, they secured Bridget Wilson, also happened to be, like the other two, five foot, nine inches tall, and she was immediately brought in after she had completed work on Billy Madison. But she was not available for that martial arts training, so Wilson had to train during her lunch breaks and in between doing scenes to perform her own fights and stunts as required. The actors improvised their personalities based on their character concepts. Lambert and Lyndon Ashby. Lyndon Ashby was hired for Johnny Cage after Jean-Claude Van Damme had already signed on for Street Fighter. But Ashby, when he auditioned, he had uh, requisite likable cockiness to him, so they thought he would be perfect. Lambert and Ashby decided to spice up their characters with as much humor as they could get away with. Boone and Tobias, though, they didn't like all of their jokey ad-libbing. They voiced criticism about how certain characters, especially Raiden, should be deadly serious. Although, really, they didn't have any creative sway over the movie. The screenwriter, Droney, he wasn't a fan either. In fact, years later at a party, Droney introduced Ashby to a girlfriend as the a-hole who ruined his script. Maybe he was being facetious at the time, but Ashby's ad-libbing did cause dialogue issues for the other actors that Droney had to come in and fix. Despite his prior experience as a boxer, Ashby did request a stunt double. He thought that his fighting was not going to be very convincing, but the makers of the film pushed Ashby to go through as much as he could in doing his own fighting. Ashby, he downed Advil like candy from the daily physical pounding he took. And and even once, he took a, a really sharp kick to the kidney that left him peeing blood for some time. Xiao temporarily left during the shoot after his mother's death. He, he used his mother's death to channel the emotional grief during a scene involving his brother's death on the screen. Xiao fractured several ribs during the making of this film, one landing against a pillar during a fight. He continued shooting the scene despite severe pain because he didn't want the production to stop on his account. He joked that in Hong Kong, a fight is ranked by how many ribs were broken during the making of a specific scene. So <laughs> Pat Johnson told the actors that if they inadvertently got hit or kicked or injured, to just keep acting because they rarely would replace a real hit with a fake one. 
and they probably wouldn't have to do that take again. Right before they started filming, Anderson did, however, have a rude awakening. New Line, they needed money for other productions, and they cut $3 million from Mortal Kombat's budget. Kasanov was vehemently angered by this, and he complained to the New Line head, Robert Shea. Shea ranted unsympathetically about how much he hated the script, he hated this movie, even though he wanted them to be successful, obviously. The cut, though, forced reductions in the effects budget, and they had to trim down or excise fight sequences that they were relying upon to make the picture work. After it was all said and done, after assembling their first cut, test audiences' scores did seem very promising, except for they noticed the budgetary limitations, and some of the game's fans did have some character nitpicks that they brought up. The detractors complained that the film did look relatively cheap, it didn't have enough fighting for their tastes, and the temp orchestral score that they used for this first cut seemed an ill fit. And the gamers specifically were annoyed. Fan favorite character Scorpion, he lost his battle too easily, they thought. Now, New Line, based on these scores, though, did think that they could have an international hit on their hands if they just did some additional tweaking. So they pushed the release date from spring 1995 to mid-August, and they coughed up an additional $10 million to handle reshoots, and that included money to bolster the visual effects, to try to put together a much more energetic soundtrack, and to add more fight scenes. Pat Johnson, though, was going to be unavailable to choreograph those fight scenes, so Anderson allowed Robin Shaw to choreograph two major action sequences, one involving Johnny Cage taking on Scorpion and Liu Kang fighting Reptile, infusing his Hong Kong wushu cinema experience into the production. Shao designed the multi-level aspects of Scorpion's lair within a, a massive airplane hangar with its bamboo and wrapped mummies taken from ancient Tibetan burial practices he was very knowledgeable about where the higher your body, the closer to heaven you get. George S. Clinton came in to provide the rousing hybrid orchestral techno score, while Anderson wanted specifically a techno soundtrack to kick in for key sequences. They approached two record companies with the idea of doing a soundtrack with electronic dance music, but Sony wanted avant-garde artist Buckethead to provide the music, proposing even Buckethead doing a guitar duel for a scene with Eddie Van Halen. That was not necessarily appealing to Anderson. Meanwhile, Virgin Records, they wanted to provide their traditional pop acts that they had on their label, like Janet Jackson and others, to do the soundtrack. Anderson knew exactly what he wanted, and it wasn't this for his soundtrack. So he pursued the electronic dance music artist that he most enjoyed, and they decided to release that soundtrack on a smaller record label called TVT, TV Tunes. And that soundtrack proved an international success when it was released into record stores. It scored a top 10 album placement pretty much immediately, and it eventually became the first electronic dance music record to go platinum. In fact, it was so successful that it spawned a rare second soundtrack album, this one featuring music that was inspired by the film rather than in the film called More Combat. Now, no advanced screenings for critics were planned for Mortal Kombat. Kasanoff stated that good reviews, they really wouldn't have very much impact toward their potential audiences, while bad reviews were probably going to be seen as too costly. It was too much of a gamble. But that strategy did pay off because Mortal Kombat proved a huge success when it was released into theaters. It ranked number one at the U.S. box office three weeks straight and eventually took in, all told, $70 million domestic and then another $80 million 
in international markets. In addition to the soundtrack, helping the marketing was also a flood of multimedia tie-ins that Kasanoff had planned all along, like the ultimate guide to the universe of Mortal Kombat CD-ROM, a very robust internet site, an animated video prequel called Mortal Kombat The Journey Begins, a live martial arts touring stage show called Mortal Kombat The Live Tour, and the release, of course, of Mortal Kombat 3 in arcades. And in all cases, that media blitz really did pay off for Kasanoff and Threshold Entertainment. Now, Mortal Kombat today really has a very strong following among people, not only nostalgic for the games as well as the 1990s, but people who like action movies, especially of the 1990s, have grown to really enjoy the jokey nature of it. By my way of thinking, I think there's really two ways that you could observe Mortal Kombat. One is as a video game film adaptation, and one is as a standalone action vehicle. And I think fans of the video games got the most mileage out of Mortal Kombat. It really showcases these characters, their signature moves. It avoids you know, those trademark finishing blows. And it's not objectively a great film, but I think Mortal Kombat does faithfully recreate the game's vibe, the attitude, a lot better than, say, Street Fighter did. And despite the limitations of the PG-13 presentation, I do think it delivers the expected goods for somebody who is looking for an adaptation of the game. Now, if you're somebody who's unfamiliar with the game, and there were quite a few at the time that were, it's probably considered pedestrian fare for those people who don't carry that nostalgia for it. You know, the plot does really lift from Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. It, it's more juvenile-minded in its characterizations. The confrontations are very silly. The dialogue exceedingly cheesy. So you have to really like, on a certain level, bad action movies to really think that Mortal Kombat is a good action movie, if you know what I'm talking about. But the movie, like I said, it has a very strong cult following. Some do consider it the best video game adaptation ever made. I think it's up there, certainly, but I think most video game adaptations are pretty bad. Not because they are adaptations of video games, but because video games themselves tend to borrow so much from movies that when you watch an adaptation based on a movie, you're already watching something recycled (laughs) from other movies already, so it seems very much like things you've seen before in movies. I think there are adaptations that stand up a little better for non-fans than Mortal Kombat, but if you're a Mortal Kombat fan, you obviously have a different opinion. It's really only a few spinal extractions away from cinematic bliss, and it captures the look and the sound and the visceral appeal of the video game quite well for those people. So I'm kind of torn. I'm on the borderline of wanting to recommend this film, but I don't think the film in and of itself is good without that Mortal Kombat tie-in. So I'm going to hedge my bets here and give Mortal Kombat on my four-star scale two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it had the tools and had the talent here to be something I could recommend to most people. But I think what's lacking here is really script-related. The script is very dumb. It does rely on those character touches from the actors as well as Anderson's visual flair to try to make up for the fact that underneath is a very poorly written script that only kind of sort of hangs together and the actors are forced to try to deliver dialogue that even though the actors, at least some of them, are pretty good, there's only so much you can do for dialogue like this. Two and a half stars out of four is what I give. Mortal Kombat. So that's a look at the first Mortal Kombat film. Obviously, there are people who are listening to this who are probably very big fans who want to take me to task about this rating. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website if you so desire to let me know why you think this should be a four-star movie. 
Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net is where to go. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are also there too if you want to follow me there. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, I mentioned it during the body of this review. It's another film that came out in the 1990s. And no, I'm not talking about Mortal Kombat Annihilation, but a film that came out a couple of weeks on video after the release of Mortal Kombat 1995 into movie theaters. I'm talking about Mortal Kombat The Journey Begins, an animated feature that is a prequel to this film specifically, and it was also written by the same screenwriter, Kevin Droney, and I will be talking about that on the next episode. It's not necessarily an easy film to find, but if you do a search, I'm sure you could probably find it somewhere out there online if you so desire to keep up with the reviews as I get to them. So, listeners of the Quipster Film Review Podcast or listeners of Around the World and 80s Movies, how did you like the first episode of To the 90s and Beyond? You can also write to me by my contact information at quipster.net. Let me know what you think or suggestions you have for either films you want me to review earlier rather than later or just the format of the show that you think it should be more like quipster.net for all the details until next time thank you so much for listening and on joining me as i travel to the 90s and beyond <laughs>